Welcome to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. We welcome to the program Professor Victor Picard, author of the book Democracy Without Journalism. We'll discuss the current crisis of journalism, the fact that it actually isn't new, but we'll more importantly get to not only the history of how we got here, Picard also outlines and envisions what a new kind of journalism might look like, and ultimately the goal is to reinvent journalism out of the current crisis. An hour on Democracy Without Journalism today with Professor Victor Picard. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. That's the latest book by media scholar Victor Picard, found on Oxford University Press. Victor is associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center, or the Mike Center. He is author, previously, of America's Battle for Media Democracy, the Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform, also co-author of After Net Neutrality, A New Deal for the Digital Age, which came out 2019. And we're talking with him about his new book, Democracy Without Journalism. Victor Picard, welcome to the Project Censored Show. Thanks for having me, Mickey. Now, Victor, I'm way overdue to have you on the show. Another book that you co-edited a number of years ago with the great Robert McChesney, Will the Last Reporter Please Turn Out the Lights? Was that the title? Yes, a very cheerful title. But so prescient and so telling. And of course, Robert McChesney certainly been writing about the political economy and mass media for a long time, and you certainly follow in those really large footsteps. It's no exaggeration to let our audience know that you are one of the towering scholars in media studies and communications. It's been a great honor to know you through Democratic Communications, other places. And today we have you for the hour, and our listeners are in for a real treat, because your book both is discussing the crisis of journalism the misinformation society, as you refer to it, that has resulted from such, but you also offer counter-narratives where you're talking about how this crisis of media that we're in really creates an opportunity. So for the hour today, I want to hear your amazing research on this really timely and significant topic. So as someone that also wears an historian hat by day, Victor Picard, you start the book by talking about when commercialism trumps democracy. And that's really a core thread throughout the book. And if you could give our listeners an idea what you mean by that, and you actually start out by talking about news media pathology. So could you define some of those things and how you situated getting into your latest book, Democracy Without Journalism? Yes, thank you. I'd gladly get into that. I think it's important to start out with that broad context to see that 
our current problems, the problems facing journalism and our news media system are not new problems whatsoever. They've basically been present since the dawn of commercialization of the press, at least 150 years. And more recently, I think it's important to point to many of the problems that became evidence with the election of Donald Trump, which, again, raised awareness about some of those structural pathologies. But far too often, we assumed that these were recent phenomena. And what I really try to do in the book is to historicize this, to show that these are symptoms of these deeper maladies, these structural maladies that are really bound up in the commercial imperatives, the commercial logics that drive so much of our media system. And just thinking back to what was going on in 2016 when it really was like the Trump reality show, and it continues to be the Trump reality show where our media, even as they're criticizing Trump, can't get enough of him. They're constantly amplifying the misinformation that he's spreading. And yet it's important to see Trump himself as a symptom and not a cause of so many of these deeper structural problems. So that's how I try to set the stage when I open up with the book. I start looking at some of the things that became clear in 2016, but then I also immediately get into the longer history going back 100 plus years when we've constantly been grappling with these commercial excesses, these commercial problems in our news and information systems. I think that's a key context for understanding not only what's wrong now, but what we need to do to create a new kind of media system going forward. Victor Picard, you start in the beginning here. I think people are pretty aware of this quip and quote by now by the now disgraced CEO of CBS, Les Moonves, the summer of 2016. You aptly refer to this whole reality television scenarios like the Trump show. But, but the quote, and we have it actually in the United States Distraction book, it was this contemporary mask has been ripped off. And here you have the CEO of CBS saying that the Trump candidacy may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. So that sentiment being heard in such a raw way, that's kind of jarring. But as you aptly point out, and again, you just mentioned a moment ago, this problem is not new. This crisis commercialism and journalism and as its impact on democratic institutions is not new at all. And in fact, this is the part that I like to geek out on. You go back and you talk about the history and you did a masterful job of this in your other book, America's Battle for Media Democracy, a fantastic history of media. If listeners are unaware of that book. But can you talk to us a little bit about that history to help our listeners understand first what maybe isn't so new about it, and then later we can get into some of the newer iterations of the challenges we face? First, I just want to note that that Les Movies quote is so priceless. It captures so much of what's wrong with our media <laughs> system. I actually tried to use that quote as part of the title of my book, Damn Good for CBS, but my editor talked me out of it. <laughs> I think that just shows you how these commercial values trump, to use a terrible pun, always trump democracy. And again, as you note, it goes back to the dawn of commercialization when the press, when you see a shift from what we now refer to as the partisan press, you know, when newspapers were mostly aligned with a particular political party, they were not driven by this profit imperative. They were pushing a particular 
ideological position. But as soon as the press became commercialized, and we should be clear when we, when we say commercialization, we're really talking about this move to an advertising revenue model. The entire logic driving the press changed at that moment. It no longer saw the polity as citizens, as members of a society, but rather it began to see people as primarily consumers, people whose attention the publishers needed to capture to deliver to advertisers. So basically capturing us, selling us to advertisers. That was the primary business model for the commercial press now for almost 150 years. And that, of course, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to this momentarily, but that's what we're now seeing come apart. But even then, way back at the early stages of this commercialization process, there were critics who said, this is not good for democracy. When you're doing this, you're not treating people as members of a democratic society. You're really just trying to see them as consumers. You're trying to monetize their attention. And it also structures the kind of news content that gets produced. So there's more of an emphasis on things that sensationalize our political affairs, anything to grab our attention. And it really changed the nature of news. And many of your listeners have probably heard of that term yellow journalism. This was exactly part of the problem, what we might call clickbait today, this tendency to sensationalize and trivialize, in some cases even make stuff up just to sell, to sell content. So a lot of the rhetoric, the criticism that you see in, their, say, the early 1900s sounds very familiar to us today, this concern that the news is not trustworthy, concerns about fake news, misinformation. This was all symptomatic of these commercial logics that drove so much of the news media system then and continue to drive the media system today. Going back over 100 years now, that also is, interestingly enough, the era of so-called yellow journalism, tabloid, sensationalistic journalism. That's also the heyday historically or, or what were referred to as muckraking reporters, whether or not that was a pejorative term, as Teddy Roosevelt may have used it, or worn mm -hmm. as a laudatory badge by Lincoln Steffens or others of the day, Ida Tarbell, Upton Sinclair, etc. It's interesting that the whole crisis of so-called fake news, the things that are up in our face today, it wasn't talked about necessarily the same way, but it sounds like that that's a crisis of previous generations that we've had opportunities to grapple with or deal with and perhaps haven't. That's very fair to, to say, which is in earlier eras, and there have been these earlier journalism crises, these media crises that were left unresolved. In many ways, they just kicked the can down the road and we'd have to deal with it later. And you see this in the early 1900s, as you mentioned, the muckrakers, but Upton Sinclair in particular, this is like a heyday of media criticism where people were just constantly coming out and saying the media that we have today is really damaging democracy. It's hyper-capitalistic. We really need to reform this. And instead of getting a lot of structural reform, although there were some attempts, and I try to chronicle those in the book to show that there were media activists who tried to create new models, but ultimately what happened was this professionalization of news media, of journalism, that embraced this idea of objectivity. And some of this was great, like that news should be fact-based. Some of this wasn't a bad development whatsoever. But unfortunately, it really didn't get at the underlying structures. It didn't address monopoly ownership of the news, especially the rise of one newspaper towns, which is a problem even way back then. 
and basically assumed that if journalists were just ethical, if they practice this kind of objectivity norm, then the public should just be at ease. And you saw this flare up again in the 1930s, 1940s, 1930s. You had the Newspaper Guild, a very militant unionization movement that's peaked in the late 30s. It stayed pretty radical after that as well, but because of the anti-communist hysteria, it really wiped out a lot of the, especially the communists in the movement. But then in the 40s, you had this attempt, again, to try to reform the press, to reform news media. And at that time, it included broadcasters. And that's what my last book really got into. And not to keep your listeners in suspense, but they were not successful. Again, it sort of put a Band-Aid on these underlying structural problems, especially this commercialism that drove media that, again, trumped any sort of democratic concern. And we've been left with this legacy. Whenever I ask this question, you know, how did Americans come to inherit a particular kind of media system, one that's so different from most media systems and democratic societies around the world? It really goes back to this earlier history when there were battles, there were interests that opposed each other, and the corporate interests went out over the public interest. And that's the long story of the 20th century. It's certainly longer than the 20th century, but the 20th century really encapsulates that. And you just distilled it for us all. And you mentioned one newspaper towns. We're down to no newspaper towns. We'll get to that later. Certainly not a good development. But you also show us the ebb and flow, the good points about the rise of objectivity. But then later on, we can talk about the objectivity bias and false equivalency and some Mm -hmm. of the, the problems that came out of that. But also the first telecom act, the 1934 Communications Act for radio, paving the way Mm -hmm. for radio. Could you give our listeners a distilled version of how did that crash and burn? Because the radio, it was a really great new media. In fact, this year is the 100th anniversary of the first commercial station, KDK in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There's something to celebrate there as far as that goes. But that all went off the rails by the late 40s. We had a heyday of television. And then as Newton Minow came in and called television a vast wasteland, the FCC by the early 60s, We've had these ebbs and flows and cycles, and it seems like we're maybe in just another one right now. Can you share your thoughts historically on that in terms of present context? And you're absolutely right that these earlier historical eras have so many lessons for us to take to heart today. But looking at the 1930s, as you know, 1934 Communications Act really solidified the American broadcast system, and it sanctified this commercial model that really was not inevitable. And this is where my mentor, you you mentioned Robert McChesney earlier, Bob did his dissertation on this period in the 30s showing that there was a really vibrant debate about the nature of broadcasting, whether it should be commercialized or whether it should be primarily nonprofit as it is in many countries. I'm actually speaking to you now. I'm, I'm living in London at the moment. And of course, we have the BBC here. And also our neighbors to the north in Canada have the CBC. Most democracies have these very strong public broadcast systems. And for historical reasons, the U.S. did not go that route. But McChesney shows that we could have. And it actually was a pretty close debate up until the last minute that we could have had 25% of the public airwaves actually focused on nonprofit educational broadcasting. It just narrowly missed in Congress. And so we ended up with this heavily commercialized system from 1934 onwards, but there were still these ensuing debates about what's the social contract if we are giving these broadcasters monopolistic use of the public airwaves, what do they owe society in return? And that's what my earlier book is all about, looking at these battles, as I call it, America's battle for media democracy, 
what happened there and what I think we need to remember when we're trying to make sense of the 1940s and why the U.S. went down a particular trajectory that's so different from almost all other democracies on the planet, we had this thing that I mentioned earlier, this anti-communist hysteria. So right after World War II, you had this period of red baiting. I would argue the U.S. had been following more of a social democratic path had a social democratic vision of media, which basically mandated the media would not be entirely dependent on the market. And we were heading in that direction. But as soon as you had this hysteria where we began red baiting anything left of center, we suddenly went down a very different road. And that explains not only why we ended up with such a commercialized media system, but also why we didn't have nationalized healthcare in the U.S., why so many of our core systems are so market-driven as opposed to having these public interest obligations and these public options. So really, again, I'm condensing a lot of history here, but when you're looking at broadcasting in particular, there was this debate, should we have uh, mandated educational coverage and public affairs programming? And we could have had something that was much more robust in that area. And instead, we ended with what many people think of as the high watermark for progressive policymaking. We ended up with the Fairness Doctrine by 1949. Mm -hmm. And even that was a pretty weak derivative of these more aggressive structural reforms that activists were pushing for. And of course, we lost the Fairness Doctrine in 1987 under Reagan. So we have a very weakly regulated hyper-commercialized media system with only these impoverished public alternatives. And that's how we ended up with this media system. It didn't have to be this way, but it's because particular commercial interests won out over others is why we inherited this kind of media system. I'd like to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we have the pleasure of speaking for the hour with Victor Picard. He's associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication, University of Pennsylvania. He's co-director of the Media Inequality and Change Center. We're talking about his latest book out on Oxford University Press, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. After this brief musical break, we'll continue our conversation with media scholar Victor Picard. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome Victor Picard. He is associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. He is co-director of the Media Inequality and Change Center, or Mike Center. He is author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. And that's on Cambridge Press. He's also co-author recently of a book called After Net Neutrality, A New Deal for the Digital Age. And today on the Project Censored show, Victor Picard joins us to talk about his most recent book, December of 2019, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And before the break there, Victor Picard was breaking down some of the history of the media in the United States and journalism in the United States in particular. And we left off talking about 
how it didn't have to be hyper-commercial. We didn't have to necessarily take this path, but as a result of red baiting and red scares and various other policy decisions, our media systems took a different turn. And so, Victor Picard, let's get to this part about it didn't have to be this way. And so I'm curious if you can take us down the path of where were there a couple of different highlights that you see rather than lowlights? We could be here all day on that front. Where were some of the highlights or opportunities missed? I mentioned Minnow. Someone else stands out out of that period, FCC, Nick Johnson. You know, had a very public view of what media could look like and why journalism and an open media is something that is for all citizens of a democratic culture. I see that through your whole book, Democracy Without Journalism. You have a question mark there. And in many ways, I think you're strongly suggesting there really is no democracy without journalism. Right. Yes, it's definitely a rhetorical question. I think you're absolutely right to focus on these earlier missed opportunities because I think they can point us in the right direction when we're thinking about what do we do now, what's to be done now, given the fact that we're losing what little journalism is left and we're having the rest of our media system just overwhelmed by this commercial logic. And I think you're putting your finger on a key moment, which was with Newt Minow, who, by the way, still going strong. I interviewed him just about six months ago. We talked about his views. You know, he was a critic of this extremely commercialized media system. But what I think few people know is that he was really an early advocate for what became our public broadcast system. And I think that is a key moment. You might think of it as a missed opportunity when it was two decades on after this earlier fight over what is the democratic role of broadcasting in society, you know, what are their public interest obligations? And because all media reformers got branded as being part of some sort of socialistic cabal, we basically went down a very different path. But by the 60s, people were starting to say, you know, maybe we made some mistakes here. Maybe this isn't the kind of media system that we want or need for a democratic society. And maybe there are certain things that a commercial media system really can't do, for example, educational programming. And so the, there was this push, and some of it was incubated among the large foundations, like the Ford Foundation, but really it came out of more of a grassroots effort that educators, a lot of them at the land-grant institutions like University of Wisconsin, University of Illinois, had served as a refuge for these educational nonprofit radio stations. And this coalition emerged to say, you know, we need to have a public alternative to this run amok commercialism that's driving so much of our media system, especially television, which Newt Minow very aptly referred to as the vast wasteland. And out of that, to make a very long story short, by the late 60s, you did have the Public Broadcasting Act, 1967. But the missed opportunity was that the initial blueprint for that system was that it would be funded by a tax on television sets, which could have served as something like the model you have here in the UK where everyone pays a license fee. And so you have this guaranteed budget for a very strong public media system. And unfortunately, when our Public Broadcasting Act in the States got passed in 67, that critical detail did not make the final cut. And so instead, it's been tied to this appropriations process, this political football. It's been kept very economically and therefore very politically weak. 
And so what could be this great alternative to the commercial media system far too often just mimics the commercial media system. NPR and PBS are certainly capable of doing some great work. And of course, public broadcasting includes some amazing community radio, including the Pacifica Network. So we do have these structural alternatives. But unfortunately, that was a real missed opportunity. We could have ended up with something more like the BBC, which of course has some of its own problems, but still would be a very strong public broadcast system. And that's what we don't have in the States. We only pay about $1.35 per person per year to support our public broadcasting system. That's literally off the chart compared to democratic societies around the planet. You get into that in the book, and you have a really telling visual graph. What are other countries doing? Canada spends somewhere around $30 per person per year. Japan is close to $50. The BBC in the UK, they get about $100 per person per year. The Nordic countries will pay close to $200 per person per year. Now, this just translates to having very vibrant, not just vibrant public media systems, but also they're more politically independent. Now, the BBC certainly comes under criticism for too often towing the official political line. But still, what you have in the U.S., because we're giving them such little funding, and to be fair, if you throw in local and state subsidies, this gets you up to about $3.40 per year. And by the way, this is all data from a really great study that Rod Benson and Matt Powers did a few years ago. I encourage your listeners to look this up. But it just shows you that we maintain a very impoverished public media system that's then forced to do things like the euphemistically called enhanced underwriting, which is basically another way of saying, you know, they do advertising, they run commercials. And of course, they also are constantly running pledge drives, to try to get individuals to donate. But really, ideally, this is not how a public broadcasting system should be funded. And if we want it to be politically independent, we have to give it a budget that allows it to be entirely autonomous and not the kind of system that we designed in the U.S. And they're also very reliant on rich benefactors, which also can skew the content. These are structural problems. And if we want to have a media system that actually serves democracy, we're going to have to fund it in ways where the system's not so reliant on corporate sources of funding and also not so dependent on powerful voices in society. That's the system we should be working towards. You have a whole chapter in your new book, Democracy Without Journalism, titled How Commercialism Degrades Journalism. And so what role do you think that media literacy might play in some of these challenges, Victor Picard? I think media literacy is key. We need more of it in the U.S., it should be part of our curriculum and starting in grade school, starting in kindergarten, really. But one caution I have about the media literacy argument is that it does sometimes tend, I think it is a structural critique in that we should reform our education system to try to really cultivate critical media literacy. But I also think we don't want to put all the emphasis on the audience. They need to be more literate. We need to change our media system so we don't have to deal with some of these problems. But really, when you do have this more critical view of our media system, you begin to see the underlying logics. All of these problems we're talking about, whether it's clickbait online or it's just terrible television or it's an invasion of our privacy, much of what is driving social media, all of these things trace back to this toxic commercial logic that's driving their behavior. 
You also could just say it's capitalism, a problem with capitalism driving so much of our media system. But I think that's the kind of media literacy we really need to strive for, to look at the structural causes of these symptoms that we can see readily at the surface, but it's not accidental. There are patterns here. You could trace it back to the ownership and control of our media system. And I, and I think that also pertains to what we refer to as the journalism crisis, the fact that we're losing so much of what could be good journalism, public service journalism, we might call it. And then what journalism is still there is so often so terrible. It's basically propping up powerful interests in society, and it's trying to entertain us, not inform us. Again, these are all symptoms of these commercial logics, and that's why I argue that we need to decouple. We basically need to disentangle journalism and, and our news media and our information from the market. I think that's the only way we can get the media system that we need. We're speaking with media scholar Victor Picard. He's associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. We're discussing his newest book just out late last year from Oxford University Press, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. After this musical break, we'll continue our conversation with Victor Picard. Stay with us. Welcome to the Holy City, a silver screen built with a lens and a low self-esteem, a teenager's plea for me. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program for the hour, we are delighted to bring to the airwaves, I'm almost hesitant to call them the public airwaves, given some of the conversation <laughs> we've been having and how they've been hijacked for commercial interests for such a long time. But we're joined by Victor Picard. He is Associate Professor at the Annenberg School for Communication 
at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He is author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, co-author of After Net Neutrality, A New Deal for the Digital Age. And today we're talking about his newest book, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. Victor Picard, before the break, you had mentioned not just hyper-commercialism, but um, the need to disentangle journalism, the free press, from market influences. Forty years ago now, Ben Bigdickian was the canary in the coal mine with Media Monopoly. That seminal book came out in the very early 1980s. Out of that period of the 70s, post-Watergate, there was a brief celebration of journalism. That's also when Project Censored was founded. 1976, Media Criticism, Index on Censorship, early 1970s. So there definitely was some, in terms of critical media literacy, in terms of scholarship, criticism, there were definitely things coming on board. And then, of course, McDickian's book in the early 80s, Noam Chomsky, Edward Herman, Manufacturing Consent, the whole propaganda model for political economy of mass media. So that was all coming on board at the same time we lost the Fairness Doctrine, at the same time, not long after, uh, the Clinton administration wheeled out the second major telecom act, 1996, the telecom act that really deregulated even further media companies and journalism. And then that foreshadows what you call the beginnings of our current crisis. And you go up to the 0809 era. Can you talk about where things went off the rails in the last generation, how the crisis emerged out of the 90s into the 2000s? It gets back to this idea that the system, the media system we have in the States is very different compared to most media systems around the world. I refer to it as American media exceptionalism. And if you look at the broad landscape, many sectors of our media system is dominated by really to call them oligopolies is probably too generous. In most cases, we're talking about monopolies or duopolies. And they're only lightly regulated. That's what, what happened earlier in the 40s. That's where they basically decide, okay, our system's going to be dominated by these monopolies, but at least we'll have some regulations on them. Well, many of those regulations went out the window. So we had the worst of both worlds, lightly regulated monopolies owning so much of our media system. We have only a very weak public media system to offset these commercial excesses. So that left us in this predicament where it was almost this perfect storm for a journalism crisis when you had this advertising model. And to be clear, almost the entire American media system is so overly dependent on advertising revenue. This is true whether we're talking about websites or our broadcasters or even our newspapers. Historically, our newspapers got about 80% of their revenues from advertising, and then 20% came from, from readers directly, either through sales or subscriptions. So when this model fell apart, when advertisers and readers migrated to the web, where digital advertising pays pennies to the dollar of traditional print advertising, this business model just blew up. It just fell apart, and it's never coming back, because even what digital advertising revenue is generated is almost entirely going to two massive corporations, your, your listeners can probably guess who they are, Facebook and Google, the big bad duopoly. So that means that this advertising revenue model that served newspapers for about 150 years, I don't think it ever served the public very well, but it kept them afloat. That has fallen apart, and now we need alternatives. We need to find an alternative means to fund the journalism that we need. Because even, as you know, it was 
historically not great. There was no golden era of journalism, but still we had a certain level, especially of local journalism. And that's something that we absolutely require if we're to have any semblance of a democratic society. So I think that's the core problem right there. You spend time, too, talking about, again, back to this, the dawn of the Obama administration and the market collapse, the mortgage scandals all around this. Of course, the crisis in journalism had been coming for those who were paying attention. You mentioned one epic thing that I had briefly forgotten, and that was the record purchase of the Boston Globe by the New York Times in the early 90s, which was, I believe, a billion dollars. And then by the time it was all said and done, they'd lost 90 plus percent. You point at 2008, 2009. What were some things that were going on there that really were nails in the coffin of that model? And in addition to that, of course, that's right around the time that we have a real ramping up of what's referred to as social media. So many important parallels with what was happening then in 2008, 2009, and what's happening now. But as you already hinted at, I mean, newspaper publishers were used to making 30, sometimes 40% profit margins. They typically had monopoly status in their given market, and they were making just obscene amounts of money. So when this business model began to fall apart, they were definitely freaking out. And I think society writ large was beginning to freak out when you had major newspapers going under. And of course, in 2008, 2009, this was the financial collapse, the financial downturn that was taking place at that time, which was a global crisis. That was sort of the accelerant for what was already becoming a big problem for journalism as everyone was migrating to the web where you really couldn't monetize content online. They still can't. This is the main reason. Although to say that the internet broke journalism, of course, is is a lazy narrative. I would argue that it goes back to this historical vulnerability, this over-reliance on advertising in the first place. That was the key problem. But so what you had in 2008, 2009 is that it was clear we had a journalism crisis. It was clear that the market was not supporting any level of journalism that we needed as a democratic society. And there was a moment, a very brief moment, where you had this window of opportunity where fairly radical ideas were being considered. They even parachuted in historians in the D.C., to talk to Congress. You know things are getting bad when they do that. They were asking things like, what did people do in the past? And that's when historians were trying to, I don't want to say educate the members of Congress, but essentially that's what they were doing. They were reminding folks that, you know, if you look at our history, you can see that media subsidies are as American as apple pie. We've always recognized the market did not entirely support our news media system, and we found ways to subsidize it, whether we're talking about the postal system or even the internet itself was made possible by massive public subsidies. So you had these fairly radical ideas, these ideas for structural reform that were beginning to swirl around in early heady days of the Obama administration. People thought, you know, we're entering a new progressive era. And of course, we all know what happened. That, that window shut pretty quickly, pretty dramatically. And we quickly fell back on these ideas that we can depend on the market. We'll be able to innovate ourselves out of this mess. We don't have to worry about public service journalism. And I think that's a big reason why we're in the the predicament we're in now. You mentioned, too, in another chapter, you have a clever subtitle, Death by a Thousand Paper Cuts. That really goes into the collapse of major newspapers on the basis of the failure of the advertising model. 
I don't know if you have a running tally or list of all the papers that we've lost here, but you mentioned some really major ones, the Rocky Mountain News, the Youngstown Vindicator, now gone, major historic papers that serve those communities. And with them, it doesn't just take out the voice of the community, doesn't just take out a news source, but it takes out jobs, takes out advertising is a problem, but it also is a place where businesses were telling other people to come support what they do in the economy. So all Mm -hmm. of the collapse of these local newspapers has this interconnected demolition. All of these things are being dragged down with it. And I I think people are, are maybe starting to wake up to the significance of local journalism, but it seems that it had to disappear before a lot of people realized. It's not just a concern for these corporate newspaper chains and these profit-driven newspaper monopolies, but really it's a concern for all of us. It's a blow to local culture, local politics. We're now up to, I believe it's somewhere around 2,000 papers that have either merged or gone under, gone bankrupt. But I think what's worse than that is the papers that are still existing are such shells of their former selves. And if we think about our hometown paper, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, mm-hmm. I mean, it's now primarily online. They've just decimated the number of their journalists. And this is true for newspapers across the country. They're no longer able to do, even what they were able to do a year and a half ago, they can no longer cover those kinds of stories. Now we've headed into another crisis where it's really driving home for people the absolute necessity, why we should think of local journalism in particular as an essential service, something that we should let wither just because it's no longer profitable for a handful of wealthy publishers. That's where we are right now, and I'm actually weirdly hopeful. The crisis is also an opportunity. As things get so bad, and they will probably have to get even worse before they get better, But I do think people are now aware of what we lose when journalism goes away and that we absolutely need it. And therefore, we might look for some new structural models. And that's certainly what I'm advocating for. I'd like to remind listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored show. We're speaking with media scholar Victor Picard, associate professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. We're speaking about his newest book, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And after this final musical break, we're going to return with Victor Picard, and we're going to be talking about some of these opportunities, and we're going to be talking about some possible solutions and ways forward. So please stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we have been speaking with media scholar Victor Picard. He's associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. 
He's co-director of the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's also author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, co-author of After Net Neutrality, A New Deal for the Digital Age, and his newest book, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. That book has been our topic today, and we left off before the last break there talking about a decline in journalism. And in fact, Victor Picard, you write, the American Society of News Editors estimated that from 2005 to 2015, the number of people employed by the news industry declined by nearly 40%. It's safe to say by now we've lost over half of people, which means there are fewer people reporting on more and more things, more and more even complicated things, perhaps. Democracy without journalism. You talk a lot about how we can build up journalism and how at the same time we can bolster our democratic institutions. So, Victor Picard, what are some things that you propose that we can do? to get out of the situation. As you uh, mentioned before, we, we, I think we were kind of quipping on a paraphrase from Rahm, Rahm Emanuel, not letting a good crisis go to waste. Um, but in this case, of course, we're flipping it differently. We're, we're not talking about this is a prime time for martial law. Um, <laughs> we're saying, hey, people are waking up. And the silver lining of this so-called fake news conundrum in the misinformation society is that people are maybe awakening to the problem that they don't have accurate or adequate information at their fingertips, despite the promises of the digital revolution. So can you talk to us about some of your thoughts there, Victor Picard? I do think there's growing awareness about these problems, and that gives me hope. I think that we are entering an opportune moment to push some of these more, you might call them radical structural reforms. But First and foremost, and by now I think anyone who's been listening to this conversation won't be surprised to hear me say that we need to take journalism out of the market. I think step one has to be decommercializing our news media system because the market is driving what's left into the ground. And if you, if you think for a moment, and you mentioned we've lost well over half of our newsroom employees in the last two decades. If you think about all this concern about the nasty things that Trump says about the press, but the market is doing what Trump wishes he could do. I mean, the market is emptying out newsrooms, hollowing out newspapers, silencing any sort of critical voices out there. So I think that's what we need to focus on and see that as our core problem, that we need to take journalism out of the market. We need to create public alternatives. We need to have a a media system, a public media system that's public, not just in name only, but publicly owned and controlled. And if we put that out there as our broad vision, as the objective we need to work towards, then we can start thinking about some of the things we need to do to get there. And I certainly argue in my book that we need to radically expand our budget for supporting public media But we also need to do so in a way where it's democratic, where communities themselves own and control the media, where they are engaged at every level of media production and governance. One of the crazier ideas that I have in the book is this idea that we could be converting our post offices into community media centers. There are these great public spaces. I think public libraries, public broadcast stations are also key public infrastructures that we can leverage here, but to have those spaces that are in most communities throughout the country as sites for local citizen news production, those are the ideas we should be pushing for. 
Victor Picard, you mentioned in the last chapter of your book, The Media We Need, you talk about the late sociologist Eric Olin Wright and the idea of envisioning real utopias, as Wright would put it. And you have a list here. You just gave us a couple of great ideas, but you, you have a list here of how you can apply this kind of strategic vision. You say how we can apply a strategic vision of taming and eroding capitalistic relationships to free our media system from commercial logics. And you say there are five general approaches conductive to the project. Talk about any more of these ideas a little more specifically. Those five points, for example, we need to break up media monopolies. That's certainly one of the steps, and that, that might include everything from Facebook to Sinclair Broadcasting and, and News Corp. We need to look at these media conglomerates and look at ways where we, we can break them up both horizontally and, and vertically. We also need to look at ways where we can, in some cases, regulate our news media. I have mixed feelings about that. It really depends. The devil's in the details there. But most important, we need to create public alternatives that I've been seeing you know, throughout this conversation, throughout my book. And those three are more top-down, but then the two bottom-up approaches would be that our newsrooms should be owned and controlled by local communities. And then the fifth one is that they should be owned and controlled by the journalists themselves. So we're talking about radically democratizing our news media and changing the imperative so that it's no longer about making money, accumulating profit. It's about serving the public, serving democratic society. And this is the reason why most journalists get into the profession in the first place. So I see it as liberating journalists, letting journalists be journalists. These are some of the ideas that, that I have in the book. But of course, there are always objections about how do we pay for it? Um, yes. If you look at, I have a bunch of ideas. We spend almost $800 million a year on our international broadcasting, like Voice of America. I mean, right there are sources of revenue. We also can look at the platform monopolies, Facebook and Google, and start taxing them so they put money into a public media fund. There are a lot of ways where we could generate this revenue. It's really not a problem of ideas, but rather it's lack of political will. Yeah, and Victor Picard, I'm glad you brought that up because when people hear these kinds of conversations, even folks that aren't media scholars, the big question always comes up, how will we pay for this? We've heard it with the Green New Deal. We've heard it with Medicare for All. Even in the midst of this health crisis of COVID-19, we still hear people saying, well, how will we pay for it? And we had Craig Aaron on recently. Of course, you're affiliated with the Free Press organization, freepress.net. And in a recent piece of Columbia Journalism Review, Craig Aaron was calling for infusion of money, a couple billion dollars. You actually call for $30 billion. $30 billion sounds like a, an absolutely astronomical amount of money. But when you just gave us some other figures about how much the military spends on their PR efforts, and well, certainly look how much money we spend on the military in general, I mean, absolutely outrageous stratospheric numbers. You talk about the idea of taxing some of these major platforms, and, and you actually end up coming up with a lot of ways to get closer to this money. You mentioned political will's the problem. The money's there. So could, could you talk a little bit more for our listeners about why it is realistic that we could get these kinds of resources together to rebuild our media infrastructure? It's a problem of political will. I'd also add to that it's a problem of imagination. 
But of course, we saw our government dish out $2 trillion uh, for a stimulus project, which is actually probably going to cost far more than that. So anytime they say the money isn't there, it is there. It's just a question of priorities. You could say the same thing about why don't we have nationalized health care in the U.S. We could do that. We could afford that. It's really a question of what we're going to prioritize. And certainly when it comes to the military or tax cuts for billionaires, we, we seem to be able to afford that. $30 billion is actually a pretty modest proposal in the bigger scheme of things. It comes out to about $100 per person. So it put us at the level as, as the UK with BBC, with funding the BBC. About $100 per person would give us a little bit over $30 billion a year. It's also in line with what we used to subsidize the postal system at, at the rate, about $30 billion a, a year. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility. And I think increasingly when we see what happens, when we entirely lose our local journalism, I think we'll start thinking maybe that's worth it. Maybe our democracy is worth $30 billion a year, if not more. When you put it like that, it suddenly sounds like a small price tag, Victor Picard. You end your, I would say, absolutely essential reading your book, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society on Oxford Press. You write about, at the very ending, you talk about what would truly public media systems look like. You know, I recently became chair of the journalism program at Diablo Valley College and part of a revitalization program. The program there is in need of revitalizing. It's kind of a microcosm of what we've been talking about this whole hour. And so what kind of advice and or hopeful ideas can you give to young journalism students? Why journalism matters? Why we need what's called engaged journalism? as you write about, mm -hmm. and solutions journalism. Why is journalism for everybody, not just people that care about the news? First of all, we want to tell them they're doing God's work. Please keep <laughs> doing it. We need you. But really, I mean, this is something that all, and this is why I'm weirdly optimistic for the long term, because if we're going to have a democratic society, we absolutely must have journalists on the ground. So we're going to find a way to support them. And I think young people today especially are not as enthralled to market fundamentalism. They don't think that it's wrong to question the market. I think we're going to be looking at interesting experiments going forward. It'll be a fun time to be a journalist in the U.S. Certainly there are going to be a lot of problems to cover. And there's going to be a rebuilding process and I think young journalists can be part of that process. Unfortunately, far too many of them right now out of necessity are going into things like public relations. We now have about six PR employees for every journalist in the United States, and it's only going to get worse. So yes, they, I hope they, they stick with it, but I do think it'll be an exciting time to be a journalist in the, in the coming years. Well, Victor Picard, you end your book, I think, on a really important note, looking ahead rather than behind. You again warn waxing nostalgic about a golden era of newspaper reporting or pining for the days of the three major networks when Walter Cronkite told us, and that's the way it is bring us no closer yeah. to the type of public media system that democracy requires. And you end from the book, and I'm quoting you here, our goal must be to reinvent news media, not shore up old commercial models. Our focus should be on the future of journalism, not the plight of newspapers or any other specific medium. And if we unhook journalism from commercial imperatives that create truly public alternatives, we just might design a media system that serves democracy. Victor Picard, so well put. Could not agree with you more, and our organization at Project Censored, our mission really aligns with yours perfectly. It's been an honor to talk to you today for the hour. 
You're doing really important work, Victor Picard. And I know that it seems like a small corner of the universe, media criticism and, and communications and the kind of scholarship that you do, that we do. But this is the kind of scholarship that needs to be public scholarship. And we need voices like yours, Victor Picard, at the center of these discussions and debates moving forward if we're to get the media we need. So, Victor Picard, anything else you'd like to share with listeners? Any way they can follow you online or social media or any places that people can follow your work? I'm probably far too active on social media, so I'm easily discovered. But I just want to thank your listeners and remind your listeners that they need to support local alternative media, media like your shows and the work that you're doing. And I think together we can reimagine what journalism could and should be. So let's do it together. Professor Victor Picard, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. Victor, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us. Thanks so much for talking to us on the Project Censored show today. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Mickey. And that wraps up another episode of the Project Censored show. My guest today has been Professor Victor Picard, author of Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. The Project Censored show airs on nearly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. Founded in 2010 by myself, Mickey Huff, and Peter Phillips, the Project Censored show continues to report the news that doesn't make the news and analyze why. Our senior producer is Anthony Fest. To learn more about the Project Censored show or to be in touch with us, go to projectcensored.org. All of our programs are archived at the website, projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And again, we do like to hear feedback, so feel free to contact us through projectcensored.org at your leisure. We'll see you next time.